Hello and welcome to the Praise Center Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information, visit PraiseCenterOnline.com. So the last time that, uh, that I got to preach here, um, I shared from the Bible reading plan that we were doing at uh, REACH, um, which is our youth group. Uh, and I'm pretty much going to do the same thing, but it's going to look a little bit different because this year um, in REACH, we've been using a video series um, called The Bible Project. Um, and it's basically this really cool visual way of summarizing um, portions of scripture um, in an understandable way. Uh, it's not a substitute for the Bible itself, but it's really helpful for showing the big picture. And, and also, so I want to acknowledge um, the, the, the REACH youth um, this year have been super engaged. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're thinking, they're learning. Um, and we've gotten into a kind of a routine um, this year where after the, the, after the speaker finishes, we do kind of this little Q&A session, and, and they are not afraid to ask a lot of questions. Um, and, and we're just learning a lot. Like, they're asking stuff that I don't even think about, you know? Like, why, 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 why does this happen? Why does, uh, you know, why... Just why. There's a lot of whys, and it's great. Because um, we're getting to teach them these things and, and help them to experience these things and, and learn these things. So um, being that we're in a much larger setting today, we're going to have to cut the Q&A part out, um, mostly because I don't, I don't want to answer adults' questions. It's hard enough answering young people's questions. <laughs> um, so today we'll get a little bit of a, a, a taste of what we do in REACH um, Today we're going to watch the video from this series that's about the second half of the book of Exodus, and that's going to be on the screen right behind me. The book of Exodus. In the first video, we explored chapters 1 through 18, which tell the foundational story of how God rescued the enslaved Israelites by confronting and defeating Pharaoh, while offering a way of escape through the blood of the Passover lamb. God then delivered his people by bringing them through the waters of the sea and then into the wilderness, where, surprisingly, they grumbled and complained. Now, the second half of the book of Exodus opens as Moses leads Israel to the foot of Mount Sinai, where God invites the nation of Israel to enter into a covenant relationship. And here we reach another key moment in the biblical storyline, because this is picking up and developing God's promise to Abraham. So remember, from the book of Genesis, God promised that through Abraham's family, somehow he would restore his blessing to all of the nations. And here we find out more. God says that if Israel obeys the terms of the covenant, covenant. They will be so shaped by God's laws and teaching and justice that they will become a kingdom of priests, which means that they will become God's representatives and show all of the other nations what God is truly like. Now the people of Israel eagerly accept the offer, and so God's presence appears right on the top of Mount Sinai in the form of cloud and lightning and thunder. And Moses goes up as their representative, and God opens with the basic terms of the covenant, the famous Ten Commandments. These are like the basic terms of the agreement, how the Israelites and God are going to relate to each other. And then after this come another collection of commands which fill out the first ten in more detail. There are laws about Israel's worship, about social justice, how they are to live together, all shaping Israel into a nation of justice and generosity that's different from the other nations. 
So Moses writes down all of these laws and he brings them down to the people who, again, eagerly agree to enter into this covenant with God. And once they do so, God takes the relationship forward another step. He tells Moses that he wants his holy and divine and good presence to come and dwell right in the midst of Israel, which develops another aspect of God's covenant promises. So remember, after humanity's rebellion in the garden, it was access to God's presence that was lost. But now it's through the family of Abraham that God's presence is becoming once again accessible through this covenant relationship, and first with Israel, and then somehow one day to all nations. So what follows are seven chapters of detailed architectural blueprints about this sacred tent called the tabernacle. There's an outer courtyard with an altar, and then in the center there's a tent that has an outer room and then an inner room. And then inside the inner room, which is called the most holy space, is a golden box called the Ark of the Covenant. And there's angelic creatures over the top of it. It's the hot spot of God's presence. Now there's lots of detail in these chapters, and it's important to know that every piece has some kind of symbolic value. All of the flowers, the angels, the gold and the jewels, it all echoes back to the Garden of Eden, the place where God and humans live together in intimacy. And so the tabernacle is like a portable Eden, so to speak. It's the place where God and Israel can live together in peace, at least in theory, because right here something goes really, really wrong. Israel breaks the covenant. As Moses is up on the mountain receiving the blueprints for the tabernacle, down below at the camp, the Israelites, they're losing patience. And so they ask Moses' brother Aaron to make for them a golden calf idol so they can worship it as the God who saved them out of slavery in Egypt. Now God's presence, it's right there on top of the mountain. They can see it. But here they are below, breaking the first two commands of the covenant they just agreed to. No other gods and no idols. Now what follows is really important. God knows what's happening down below. And so he first invites Moses into his own anger and pain. And he tells Moses what he wants to do, just to wipe Israel out. But Moses intercedes by appealing to God's character. He says, first of all, destroying Israel would be going back on your covenant promises to Abraham. And then Moses appeals to God's reputation among the nations. What would they think if they see you destroying your own people? And so God accepts Moses' intercession and he relents. And while he does bring his judgment on those who instigated the idolatry, he forgives the nation as a whole and promises to renew his covenant. And it's right here at this point in the story that God, for the first time, describes his own character to Moses. He says, the Lord is merciful, he's gracious, he's slow to anger, abounding in covenant faithfulness. He forgives sin, but he will not leave the wicked unpunished. So we have this tension. God is full of mercy, but also he must deal with evil if he claims to be good. And above all, God is faithful to his promises, even though it means, he knows, he's committing himself to a people who are utterly faithless. And so after renewing the covenant with Israel, God commissions Moses to go ahead and build the tabernacle. And once again, we get five long chapters describing in detail the construction of the tabernacle. And it all comes together in the final chapter where the tabernacle's finished. God's glorious divine presence comes and hovers over the tent and our hopes are high. And so Moses, he goes right up to enter into the tent and he can't. He actually can't go in and that's how the book ends. It's really surprising, but 
not really if you think about it. You can see now how much Israel's sin has damaged the relationship with God in more ways than we realized. So the book opened, remember, with Pharaoh's evil threatening Israel and threatening God's covenant promise. But now, as the book ends, Israel has become its own worst enemy. It's their sin that's threatening the future of the covenant. And so the question, as the book closes, is how is God going to reconcile this conflict between his holiness and his goodness and his presence with the sinful corruption of his own covenant people? The solution to that problem is what the next book is about, but for now, that's the book of Exodus. All right. So that's kind of what we've been going through, um, and as you can see, we're only into the book of Exodus, but it's only been a few weeks. Um, so like that video says, the second half of the book of Exodus is mainly focused on the covenant at Mount Sinai. And it really lays down the bricks of what the Israelites will have as their religion in the world. And it's kind of at the point um, at which Israel becomes its own nation, um, where they're completely separate from the rest of the world in terms of beliefs. So the book of Exodus uh, reveals a behavioral pattern that the nation of Israel will struggle to overcome for the entirety of their existence. And it's a behavior that I think the whole world has been struggling against and continues to show even today. Um, I want to talk to you today about our need for a personal relationship and trust in God. Uh, we're going to look at three situations um, it, that the Israelites faced in Exodus and how they responded to each one, and then reason out how we can apply that, uh, what we learned, to our own lives. Uh, let's pray. Father God, thank you um, again for this opportunity to, to come and to speak your word, Lord, and I just pray that your Holy Spirit, Lord, would... Um, just open up our hearts and our minds, Lord God, to, to just learn and understand, Lord God, what you would have us to hear today. So I pray that you would uh, um, bless this message, Lord God, in Jesus' name, amen. amen. So the video we watched was not all-inclusive to the whole book of Exodus, um, but for my message, I'm going to start way back at the beginning of the book and work forward from there. We won't be staying in any one verse for very long, so I won't ask you to turn to any passage um, in your own Bible, I'll just have it up on the screen. So the first verse, uh, starting in Exodus chapter 2, verse 23, it says, The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. So here we have the Israelites in this desperate spot where they're being abused, murdered, taken advantage of, and they have no one to stand up for them and save them. So they cry out. Frankly, I think in our very soft and civilized society, we probably can't fully grasp that level of desperation that they felt. Um, though some people do absolutely face horrible situations in, in their own lives, and they feel trapped or enslaved. But on a spiritual level, every single person begins their spiritual journey in slavery to sin. Uh, Romans 6, Paul talks about being a slave to righteousness as the alternative to being a slave to sin. So even though we may not experience the physical abuse of a, of a master, the end result of being enslaved to sin is far worse than any human master uh, could ever treat us. So we can relate to the Israelites in that way. We have a master who does not want what's best for us, and we have no way to save ourselves. And then in the next chapter of Exodus, God says this when he's talking to Moses out of the burning bush. This is in chapter 3, verses 7 through 8. I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians, 
and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Then Moses listens to God's call, leads the Israelites out of Egypt, and their situation goes from despair to joy and celebration. God listened to the Israelites cry for help, and he saved them. Imagine being in their shoes. You saw all these plagues called down by God, and then you saw the Red Sea split in two so that you could walk through it on dry ground. And then you see the sea fall back onto the people that were abusing you and destroy them. And if that wouldn't be enough to make you excited, I'm not sure what would be. Um, So my first point is this. Whether your slavery is on the inside spiritually to sin, or if you feel like your slavery is some outside force, God hears you when you call. The people of Israel didn't have the Bible back then. Um, What they believed in was what their parents had taught them and from their parents um, up the line. And and this is very early in the history of the world and of God's plan. So even if they did, you know, know that there was a God who created the world and talked to their ancestors, they didn't really have a clue of what God's plan was other than that he promised Abraham that he'd have as many descendants as stars in the sky. But even with this very limited knowledge of God, they cried out for help, and God heard them. Much like many people today who, even with access to the Bible, they don't know it at all. Any one of us who believes in God can call out to him if we need his help. Any person who says, God, I need you to save me, will be heard, even if they've never set foot inside a church before. Really, the only thing that has to take place is people have to come to a point where they want God's salvation, and they ask for it. He hears that plea, and he'll make a way for salvation, whether it's Moses leading an entire nation or an average Joe leading their friend in a sinner's prayer. So the Israelites have escaped from Egypt, but now they have a long journey ahead of them through a desert and through lands occupied by some pretty fierce enemies. But before the journey has hardly begun, they start realizing that just because they aren't slaves anymore, life can still be hard. So my second point is that God is on your side. Even as Christians, life is going to get tough, and you have a choice to trust that God will bring you through your struggles, or just give up and do what you want to make life easier. Exodus chapter 16, verses 2 through 4, says, In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. And then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. And then in chapter 17, just one chapter over in verse 3, the Bible says, But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? And then skipping down to verse 6, God replies, I will stand there before you at the rock at Horeb, strike the rock, and water will come out of it for the people to drink. See, God continued to provide for the Israelites every time they cried out to him. You may have noticed, though, that the people still didn't really understand that God was on their side. They were so focused on how hungry they were that they blamed Moses for bringing them up out of Egypt at all. They were reminiscing about the good old days of being slaves, where at least their masters would feed them after they beat the snot out of them. If you were here last Sunday, Pastor Sal taught about God being our constant provider at all times. Um, So this point is very closely related to that. So to quickly recap some of what he taught, um, in the book of 1 Kings, King Ahab and his wife Jezebel were trying to kill the prophet Elijah. 
All we really know that Elijah did was prophesy that there would be no rain or dew until he said so. But in order to save him, God sent Elijah to live next to a stream and to let the birds bring him enough food to live on. Elijah, like the Israelites, was probably happy to go where God told him when it came to escaping from being executed. Also like the Israelites, Elijah probably wasn't too thrilled that following God meant leaving his home and living alone with no one around but the birds who brought him food. The difference between Elijah and the Israelites, however, is that the Bible doesn't say that Moses, or excuse me, that Elijah grumbled against God. He trusted God and God provided. So back to our friends in Exodus, they had multiple instances where they literally would have died had God not miraculously provided a means of survival. There is, however, a big difference between how the Israelites cried out to God for help in Egypt and when they grumbled against Moses in the desert. I want you to notice that in both cases, God was faithful to provide for Israel, but Israel's behavior went from viewing God as their only hope and celebrating his miraculous rescue to complaining that he was going to kill them in the desert. Their faith started to waver. Here's the important part of this point. The Bible does not promise that life gets easier when we give our lives to Jesus. In fact, it says that when we believe in Jesus, the world will hate us and persecute us, and sometimes it's not even going to be people doing things to us. The circumstances of life can just be terrible no matter who you are. It's at that moment when life is getting really difficult that you have the choice to grumble and complain or to trust that God will provide what you need. Here, the Israelites made the wrong choice. They believed that God didn't care about them, so they cried out, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. Notice that they still believed in God, but their view of him was starting to warp. At first they rejoiced because he saved them from their slavery, and then they started saying he must hate them because he didn't bring us to Red Lobster. <laughs> but notice that God continued to provide for them, even when they complained, because even though they were complaining, they were still following Moses, and Moses was following God. They could have left the group and tried to survive on their own, but because they stayed, they received the gift of food and water from God. I also want to point out that God used Moses' continued faithfulness to feed the people. Moses was the shepherd to the Israelites. Like sheep, they couldn't look past their own stomachs to see that God wanted them to prosper and not die. Moses knew God's heart for the people, and even if they didn't quite understand the circumstances around them, Moses did. The Bible actually doesn't say that the people grumbled against God, though it's kind of implied. What it says is, was that they grumbled against Moses. And I applaud Moses for his patience. As great a man as he was, he was still human, and humans have limits. And Moses was no exception. We can read the story and see how obvious it was that the people should have followed Moses because he was close to the Lord. But do we always have the same attitude toward our Moses? Moses was essentially the pastor to the Israelites. Let's not make the same mistake Israel made. God placed our pastors over us to lead us into the promised land. Whatever that looks like. If we believe that they're anointed by God, I think it would be wise to listen to them. At the very least, we shouldn't grumble against them. I'm not saying this in light of any situation that I'm currently aware of, but I just thought it was important for us to be reminded, uh, and maybe especially since today is Pastor Appreciation Day, that <laughs> they're leading us where God tells them to lead us. If we have a complaint, take it to God first and ask him if your heart is fully trusting in God and by extension trusting the shepherd of, that God has placed in your life. So could the Israelites have handled this situation better? Yeah. Uh, they could have trusted that God had them covered. 
and that Moses wasn't leading them to die. Philippians chapter 2, uh, verses 14 through 15 says, Do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. As Christians, we have the ability to influence how the world uh, sees Jesus. If we grumble or argue about the stuff we're going through or the jobs we have to do or the homework we have to do or the money we have to give away, whatever it is, if we're complaining, then we're no different from everyone else. The Bible says that if we don't grumble or argue, then we'll shine like stars in the sky. Um, if you're like me, you might have a hard time talking about Jesus with your friends or coworkers or your peers, um, not because you don't want to, but because they don't ask about him and you don't want to be pushy. So picture this, you walk into work tomorrow morning and you're glowing so bright that everyone notices, like you're physically glowing. So how many people are going to ask, why do you look like a disco ball? Everyone is going to ask you, and that's what Paul is saying here in Philippians. When you are living your life the way Jesus calls you to, you'll look so different from everyone else that people will notice and they'll ask you about it. Some people aren't going to like it. But some people are going to want to know more about it. And then you have a perfectly reasonable and non-pushy excuse to share what God has done for you and what he wants to do for them. Um, there's a song by the, the Christian band Newsboys called Shine. Any, anyone remember that song? Yeah. I learned a fun fact about that uh, that, that I didn't know before I looked this up. Um, when the album that that song came out, um, that that song was on, I had just barely turned one year old, so... Uh, in, the, in that song, the chorus says, Shine, make them wonder what you got. Make them wish that they were not on the outside looking bored. Try to keep that in mind as you go throughout your day. Um, if you feel just as bored as everyone else, you're probably not shining very brightly. And they probably aren't wondering what you've got that makes you different from them. Unfortunately, the Israelites in the desert also weren't really trying to shine. They're probably lucky that they weren't close enough to any other countries for people to see how pathetic they were. They were complaining with a God who literally rained food from the sky. And, and he was literally the only God who actually did anything on earth. So like I said, the second point is that struggles will come and you have the choice to trust that he will provide for you. He's on your side. Each time you choose to trust in God, you will grow closer to him. It makes sense then that every time you choose to complain or grumble that things aren't going right, you may be pushing yourself away from him. Which leads to the third and final story point. Um, God leads them to Mount Sinai where he speaks to Moses. The Bible says that the Lord had Moses bring the people close to the mountain so that they could hear God speaking and know that everything Moses told them was from God. So God gives Moses the Ten Commandments and the laws in order for them to be his people. And they're so excited, they say, yes, we'll do everything the Lord tells us to do. So then God tells Moses, come on up to the mountain. And, uh, and then they're just going to talk. And he's going to give Moses the laws written on tablets of stone. And Moses ends up staying on top of this mountain for 40 days and 40 nights without coming back down while God instructs him on rituals and laws and, and probably just hangs out with him for a while. Um, so we pick up the story here in Exodus chapter 32, verses 1 through 4. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses, who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. 
Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Later on in verse 9, God says this to Moses, I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. Lucky for the Israelites, Moses by now knows God well enough to know that that wouldn't be like God to save them from slavery, only to wipe them out right after. And he says that to God, and God doesn't wipe them out. They do, however, face punishment for their sin. But here's the point. The Israelites didn't all of a sudden change from worshiping God uh, to changing to a false god. It happened because they weren't feeding their faith. And because in their pride, they believed it was something that they did that saved them. Uh, Here's what I mean. When they were first saved, they were excited because they saw that they weren't slaves to the Egyptians anymore. And they worshipped God for how good he was to them. Then when times got tough in the desert, they grumbled and stopped giving God glory for saving them and taking care of them. They weren't feeding their faith. When you stop feeding your faith, something happens. It's not just faith that shrinks, but pride grows. And pride is the enemy of love. Pride is what helps us decide that our way is better uh, than God's way. Uh, Pride in what we think we understand. See, the Israelites had God himself right next to them on top of the mountain, and they still begged Aaron to make them an idol because they let their pride say that God wasn't taking care of them. You might think, no, 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 that that wasn't pride, that was fear. They were afraid of Moses being dead and God abandoning them. But that fear came from their pride, which is the voice inside them that said, don't trust God, trust what your own eyes are, are seeing and what your ears are hearing. It's very easy to allow pride in your life without even realizing it. Pride is the confidence in what your own mind decides. Just because someone is afraid doesn't mean that they aren't prideful. In fact, fear is the mind being so confident in thinking that there's a reason to be afraid that it rejects outside influence. Each of us has fears, and that doesn't make us bad people. It just means we're still being worked on. But the goal is to approach any situation with the trust that in spite of anything my senses are telling me, God is with me, and God cares for me. God will see me through any situation until the day he brings me home. But if we're not practicing our faith and training it, then we're training our pride. We may believe in God at first, but things get hard when we start to question if God really cares. And and, and if we keep doing that, we'll start questioning if he really cares enough when he's sitting right next to us, And then before you know it, you're right back in slavery to your old ways because you were so convinced that we knew better than God that we stopped looking for him. So I don't know how many of you, like me, uh, you you read these passages in the Bible and you think, man, these Israelites are so stupid. How could they worship a calf statue when they literally heard the voice of God and could still see the cloud from which he spoke to them? But we shouldn't be too quick to judge them. They didn't all of a sudden change from being believers to being non-believers. Throughout their journey, they made decision after decision uh, to to question and doubt God. And even after he proved himself faithful over and over, they still argued and grumbled. Finally, they became so hard-hearted 
that just like the Egyptian pharaoh from whom they were freed, they could see God's miracles and still reject him due to their pride. I want to invite the worship team to come on back up as we prepare to close. Like I said at the beginning, this is a behavioral pattern that is repeated time and again throughout the history of Israel. They frequently saw the power of God on display in miraculous ways, and they might at first have given him glory, but they didn't build their faith. And when push came to shove, they would break and go back into old habits because they were familiar to them. Their pride convinced them that, they, that there were easier alternative paths for their lives. Jesus himself was executed because the Jewish religious leaders were so blinded by their pride and, and their positions of religious authority that they watched Jesus heal people but cursed him for doing it on the Sabbath. With the power of God right in front of them, they cried out, make us an idol, and they built for themselves the idol of tradition that would make them feel good about themselves. And again, I believe this behavior continues to run rampant even 2,000 years after the power of God was shown in the, in the mightiest way in history with Jesus being raised from the dead and, and allowing all of us to have access to him. How many people do you know who had been walking in faith, but they slowly slipped away? The best way we can fight the cancer that is pride is to stoke the flame of our faith so that it will produce humility and trust in God that burns pride out of our souls. So to bring all three points together, when you're in need, call to God. He listens. When times are tough, keep trusting in God. He's on your side. And then lastly, don't fall asleep in your faith. Feed it, fan the flame, and continue to give God glory. The Israelites may have been foolish to build an idol with God's presence manifested right next to them, but how much more foolish would we be to doubt God who have the spirit of God, his presence, not next to us, but living inside of us. Come on. Let's pray. Lord God, we just pray, Lord, that we would, we would cry out to you, Lord, that we would trust in you, God, that we would understand that you are on our side, Lord. And we pray, Lord, that we would continue to build our faith, Lord God, to not become cynical, to not become complaining, uh, complaining uh, to not become argumentative, Lord God, or to complain, but to just to trust you, Lord to trust the people that you put in our lives, Lord God. And we just thank you, Lord, that you've given us access to, you, to your presence, Lord God, that your presence comes to live inside of us, Lord, and to teach us and to correct us, Lord God. We pray that we would all shine, Lord Jesus. Even as, even as Moses, after he was in your presence, his face was shining so much that, that he had to cover his face. Lord, we just pray that yeah. we would all shine your presence, yeah. Lord God, into the lives yeah. of the people around us. And we just pray that we would glorify your name, Lord God. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Yes, amen. Thank you for listening to Praise Center Sermon of the Week. Don't forget, for more information, visit PraiseCenterOnline.com.